0: Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. Hello and welcome to Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. I'm your host, Mark Iacono, and this podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the world's largest legal recruiting and consulting firm. I am a member of Major Lindsay's Transform Advisory Services team, and I advise law departments and law firms and a variety of operational issues. My guest today is Kristen Hulse. She is the Senior Director of Attorney Development and Recruiting for Snell & Wilmer, and we are thrilled to have her with us. Kristen brings an unusually broad background of experience in recruiting, mentoring, training, and other professional development. And she has nearly 20 years of experience working in legal education, attorney recruiting, professional development, and most recently she's blended her role um, with an interest in mental well-being and mental health in the legal profession and particularly how good mental health hygiene can help younger lawyers deliver um, their services better and enjoy their work more. Prior to coming to Snowman and Wilmer, she was on the faculty for the legal extern program at the University of Denver Sturm College where she taught practice readiness and corporate lawyering seminars she began her career as an associate with decker in both dc and london with additional experience in recruitment and professional development roles with georgetown university law center the university of california berkeley school of law and the san francisco firm of coblenz patch duffy and bass she's also a fellow of the american college of law practice management an advisor to the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System. That is a lot, probably the, the most credentialed um, person I've had on 33 episodes of my podcast, but we're delighted to have you. And at this time I usually say, would you like to tell the, our guests a little bit about yourself? So I'm gonna do that knowing that I've just given the longest introduction I've ever given any guest.
1: So I'll respond with um, an interview question I ask, right? Which is, tell me something about yourself that is not on your resume. Uh, so I will answer that question. I, I, live, in, I live in Denver. I have um, two twin sons. They are 10 years old. Uh, my husband, Dominic, is also an attorney. And we just absolutely love living in Denver, being outdoors, eating good foods, and spending time with our friends.
0: Does Denver still have that amazing bookstore? The Cherry Tattered food? Cover. Yes. Yep. Love yep. that bookstore. It's terrific. Yeah, so we could live there. Yeah. We could literally live there as a stowaway. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, mental health, lawyer development, legal education. You, you caught my eye. I'm always, um, I'm always fishing through LinkedIn for people who I think would be good guests. And I think you caught my eye because you had a post last year that said last year in January, you decided to have dry January. And that's extended to like a 400 game hitting streak of no alcohol. And I was, I really reached out to you because I like people with stories and you told me you didn't have a particularly, uh, dramatic story around going dry, but it kind of played into your bigger narrative with some of the things you're interested in that are relevant to us, our podcast. So can you share a little bit about that experience? Sure,
1: so the the dry January experiment for me really stemmed from an intentional decision that I made when I turned 40, which was to check in with myself and to perhaps build some self-awareness around how I'm feeling, who am I now, how do I bring myself to my personal relationships, to my life, and to my work. So I started that journey through some self-assessments, and we can talk about those a little bit later, but I also decided to focus on my physical health. And I started an exercise regimen that I had never, ever been disciplined about before. Uh, And I was feeling really good about that. And I found that being disciplined about that opened up my eyes to the possibilities of being disciplined about other things. And I felt that since I was really checking in with myself and prioritizing my, my physical health. And my mental health, which did improve when I started exercising more regularly, um, it was time for me to explore my relationship with alcohol. And dry January was just a really convenient time to do it. it you know, it's a time where we all feel a little bit of indulgence um, after the holidays and, and we want to reset. But also, there's just this whole industry around dry January now. There are trackers for dry January, there are a lot of Um, resources and support that you get when you try to um, examine your relationship with alcohol at the beginning of a year as people are making New Year's resolutions. So that was really the impetus behind that. And it's something that felt good for me and felt right for me. And that's why I have continued to this day. And I, I actually did check the tracker. This morning is day 386.
0: Well, by the time this podcast comes out, <laughs> it will be, be well into the 400s. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> You'll be into the mid fours. I promise. Um, so that's a, that's a really cool thing. And you know, it's interesting because I've had a few guests on from the fitness world because I wanted them to talk about either dispelling nutritional myths about what works and doesn't work or dispelling the myth that you have to have a Tom Brady-like regimen in order to be fit. And so when you tell me you you know, you know started by building this discipline of exercise, can you share how you went about doing it in a way where it was sort of a, a component of your life and not this like overwhelming, daunting thing that you took on? Because I think the idea of getting the, into a disciplined fitness regimen, the words scare people when in fact it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to, you know, train like a professional athlete.
1: Sure. So one thing that I had been feeling a lack of when I when I turned 40 was just a, a lack of connection with others. And this did happen before COVID. So it, it was still possible to, to be surrounded by other people. So something that I had never explored before was group fitness. I was really intimidated by it, uh, but I had a friend here in Denver who, takes part in bar fitness um, with a local bar studio and she had a free guest pass and she said that, you know, you're going to see people from all walks of life, all body types, but we all just really support one another and that didn't seem too intimidating to me so I took her up on that and I think it's that social component. And and feeling like it wasn't on me alone to do this. And I wasn't setting my own metrics and, and and trying to achieve them. I wasn't on this journey by myself that made it a little bit more enjoyable for me. Uh it, it was really hard at the beginning, but I enjoyed the, the the feeling of being surrounded by other people while I was working out. And I I I went from being very self-conscious to not noticing anything about myself or anyone else and just truly being in the moment. And and it really was a a mindfulness almost experience for me. Bar
0: classes are no joke either. No, (laughs) you can't really think about (laughs) it. That's some serious work on a lot of muscles that most people don't even know exist.
1: Yeah, Um, that's right. And I love it. And I've I've now completed, I think it was 315 bar classes at, at my latest. As you can tell, I like to tally up my accomplishments, yeah, that's very one of my computa-
0: You are very <laughs> computational, aren't you?
1: I am, I'm a checklist oriented person.
0: You know, it's interesting though, because you talk about how the social connectivity was, was good for you in a couple of ways. One, because you felt more connected to other people. And two, because it sort of lowered the bar in terms of getting into a routine because you weren't competing against the sort of invisible man, so to speak. But you were participating in an activity with others, so fitness was was the chosen activity. But you hadn't set yourself up for failure by kind of creating these solitary metrics that were very hard. Would be very hard to accomplish without you know others. Yeah, yeah,
1: and I appreciate that, and I. I also do, um, I do now spend a lot of time on the Peloton bike, and although I'm not physically in the same presence as other people, I've done everything I can to make that a social experience too, including by joining a lawyer mom Peloton group on Facebook, so, you know, we compete together, we high-five one another all the time, Um, and and really adding a social component to that, and interestingly enough, I'm, I'm now also a member of some different peloton sobriety groups on facebook so wow. it, that's that's the synthesis right of, of the exercise and doing something else that's healthy for my body
0: yeah and you know is it funny at the beginning of the pandemic i had a period of time where um i was i was on my own away from my family for 50 days taking care of a family project and working remotely and i it was like talking to wilson the volleyball even the volleyball kind of got tired of talking to me yes. but i found this fitness community called hip burn and this fitness okay. expert called kelsey heenan who was who's been a guest and it started with like a 30-day challenge and, and the coolest thing was there are people from all over the globe doing it, in posting on the private fit, uh, facebook page and i was like you know this is pretty cool because i'm here by myself Oh, granted, I can call my wife, I can call my kids, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of time just to be alone. And it, you really can through some of these, these virtual experiences feel a sense of community, which I think is really relevant to what we're going through as a profession today because we have to find ways within our profession to build community because we're that's not right. always all going to be together. That's right. Yeah. And so you you know you're you're kind of being drawn to the group fitness element, it sort of ties in with the with some of the issues that lawyers struggle with, you know today. And in fact, you know the the ABA Hazleton survey that mm-hmm. came out a few years ago really pointed to loneliness as a key driver of depression, anxiety, uh, issues with alcohol and, and and substance abuse. And in fact, it showed contrary to what my assumption would have been that a lot of the people most affected are actually younger lawyers.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting coming straight from the law school experience. So I transitioned over to the firm in July, which meant that the, I spent the first year and a half of the pandemic teaching over Zoom to law students. And you know, I, I really heard and felt that, that they were suffering throughout that experience. And so that's been something that I've really made a mission of mine now at the law firm, which is to really try to set up support networks and opportunities for our junior lawyers in particular to connect within the firm because they didn't have a typical law school experience and many of them didn't have a typical law firm orientation and integration experience either.
0: Yeah, and so many of us when we went to firms had the summer program, which was as much about the social and cultural immersion in the firm as it was about the work. So what are some of the strategies that you're employing now to try and build that sense of community with these young lawyers who have had as atypical an experience matriculating into firm life as anybody at any time in the modern age, I think?
1: Yeah. So this is where I'm really fortunate in that I cover both recruiting and development. And I think, I think that's important because one informs the other. So on the recruiting side, as I am bringing in new candidates to the firm, I am able to immediately connect them with the attorneys that I'm getting to know through my development function. And I'm spotting commonalities. We're working on mentoring pairings. Uh, But another initiative that we're working on right now is to really make all of our trainings, group trainings, and more experiential with more opportunities for small group breakouts, even if it's just over Zoom and not in person, so that you you start to develop a sense of having a cohort and and an opportunity to share with one another. And it's not just this passive learning that traditionally might happen in a CLE.
0: So it sounds like you're kind of bringing a clinical experience component.
1: To I love even it, yes.
0: Learning, right? Yes,
1: as as, an, as a former experiential faculty member, that's exactly what I'm trying to do.
0: So I, there's really two questions from that in terms of reception. How have the young lawyers received it and how have the more established lawyers who are looking to add con- and provide content in, 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 in Mentor received it, what's been the, have there been any differences? Has there been any differences in onboarding? Just describe the experience between the two different demographics.
1: Yeah, so I think for the junior demographic, they are so eager to connect and to learn. And so any trainings that my department has put on or offered, uh, we've had really high uptake from our our junior end of the spectrum. On the more senior end, um, what we're finding is there's a lot of awareness among those lawyers that they benefited from things that our junior lawyers haven't, which is just the organic learning and mentoring that happens from physical proximity, right? And so they have really renewed their interest in being mentors and being coaches to our junior attorneys. And and we are now starting to think about, well, let's reimagine our mentoring programs. Let's think about our retention efforts and how we can take advantage of this great body of talented and dedicated, experienced attorneys and really connect them with those that are new to the firm. Well,
0: you know, that's really fascinating to hear because if you really track sort of the trade press, you know, you sort of sense, or at least from the trade press, there's a perception that there's are sort of these generational behemoths that are clashing between younger lawyers that wanna be remote older lawyers who feel that the only way to learn is by, you know, the way I learned having someone sit next to you and show you my brief swathed in red while they yelled at me. Um, But it sounds like there is a third paradigm, which is that nobody discounts the in-person part, but it seems like it's now in Wilmer and what you're developing is everybody realizes we can do more than we thought with with this type of virtual mentoring in this in in this hybrid style it seems like it's kind of a different paradigm than we at least read about in the trade press
1: yeah i i think that many of our attorneys recognize that they benefit personally and professionally from having some time away from the office and we support that but they also recognize that they benefit from having some time together in the office and we support that too we also as a firm have always prioritized the, the social connections that we build among our attorneys. So for example, we we've always had a, a firm-wide all attorney retreat. And our attorneys are each invited to bring uh, a spouse or a partner and children. So we just had our first all attorney retreat for the first time in since before COVID. We had that in November. We're gonna have another one in April. Right. Wow. And it's just such a good opportunity for everyone to reconnect, to is, is reestablish those social bonds. And frankly, that's what drew me to Snell and you know, Obviously I, I've had a lot of experience in, in law firms and, and legal ed. And as I knew that I was entering the, the job market during a really tumultuous, challenging, unprecedented time, um, I wanted to be able to work for a firm where relationships really matter. And and that's what guided me to the firm, frankly.
0: I think that's so true and it's so unique that it would be that inclusive of an event. You, you know, it was interesting. When I left practice, it was to run a company. And when I left that company, I came to Major Lindsay to help found their consulting practice. And I remember like the first three weeks, at one point there was like group training and sales. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm an introvert. I got to go meet all these people I don't know. And I left thinking, oh, a really nice group of people. Then, like, the week after was, like, the company's annual meeting with everybody yeah. all over the globe. And I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. I thought one of the best times of my life, so those an annual meetings yeah. yeah, and realizing that the people within the organization are so bright and so so nice and right. so different. Those really can tie people together. I am hopeful that as we get, as we learn to manage COVID, I don't know that we'll ever get past it. But as we learn to manage it and find different ways to accommodate safety and people's tolerance for risk, that that there are more opportunities for firms to gather like that, where where younger lawyers and more established lawyers can begin to, you know, share. Um, Personal experiences, share traditions, share share cultures, and build, you know, the kind of common bonds that, that that take you away from feeling isolated.
1: Yeah, I I think that you just cannot overstate the importance of caring about your coworkers and knowing that they care about you, but also knowing that they lead full and interesting lives outside of the office. And, and, and recognizing that, I think, engenders a whole new level of, of respect for, for colleagues.
0: It does, but w- let's face it, we both know that's not true at every firm. <laughs> it's,
1: you know, I, I, I was reflecting on this this morning as I was reading you know all of the American lawyer reports about this newest, round of salary raises. And you know, I, I certainly do not fault any associates for making decisions based on finances. I know that law school is extremely expensive. I know that the, the debt is high and it's disproportionately uh, weighed against those who are not in the majority. Um, but that said, I, I, I do worry that with continued increased compensation comes even heightened expectations of our associates. And I also think it reinforces this concept of associates as just being fungible, right? These ml 50 firms just needing bodies and doing whatever they can to get bodies, whether it's, you know, a hundred thousand, $200,000 signing bonus, you know, knowing that the associates likely gonna leave in a year or two anyway, because they're gonna be totally burned out. And then they're gonna go back to where they were before or to a a more gentle environment where they can still practice law in in a sophisticated, meaningful way, but maybe not have to bill over 22, 2300 hours a year.
0: So that leads me to the topic of self-awareness. Yeah. And how self-awareness can help guide you in intentional decision-making. Yes. And I think it's important because for younger lawyers in large firms, and not just the MLAW 50, but all large firms really that pay a considerable amount of money and not necessarily are factoring that into, a considerable amount of money for a balanced lifestyle. What are some of the self-awareness things that you encourage or hope to teach young lawyers to be mindful of as they make those decisions one, whether to accept that job, and two, if they accept that job, how to find a way to navigate that job if, if, if yeah. possible. You know, what is, what is the toolkit they need to potentially survive? And I, I say that because I, I don't have a bias that big law is wrong for everybody. It is wrong for some people, but there are some people who really are geared to do that kind of work and wanna be in that environment but at the same time they do have a need to be, you know, to take care of themselves. Yep. And I think it starts with self-awareness. Can you shed some light on that?
1: Sure, so that, that question that you've asked, that is what initially drew me to wanting to be a law faculty member in an experiential program because I wanted to be teaching these students as they were completing these externships, as they were navigating a position in a law firm or a company to help them decipher what they were experiencing in the field, but also to process how they were feeling about it and what that meant to them. So while I was teaching at the law school, um, I I used a variety of assessments with students and and some some guideposts, some some reflection points. Um, One of my favorites is um, not actually an assessment, but it's a Ted talk that I show. And It's Emily S. Fahani Smith's TED Talk on the four pillars of meaning. I show it at, at, in class. She identifies what the four pillars of meaning are, which are um, a feeling of belonging, a feeling of purpose, feelings of transcendence, and your storytelling, right? What you say about what you've experienced, how you tell the story of your journey. And for each of those four pillars, we talk about when they felt that way. When did you feel like you belong? When did you feel like your purpose was aligned with what you were doing? Um, when have you, when do you feel flow? When do you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself? And how does this contribute to your personal narrative? And are you feeling it in this place? Right? We give you them really
0: home- some, some load stars to, 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 to some guides to check in with some reference points.
1: Yeah. And, and my approach is is really centered around positive psychology, right? I'm, I'm an armchair follower of, of, of a bunch of positive psychologists, but my my approach for building self-awareness really hinges on one's awareness of what one's strengths are. So I will often conduct the, the strengths finder or, or Clifton strengths assessment and use that as a starting point, right? So when you're aware of your top five strengths and how those may influence your instincts and in how you're connecting with others, how you're connecting with your work. You know, are you able to leverage those strengths? Right? When did you feel that you were able to use empathy in your job? Empathy is one of my strengths. Right? So those, those are some of the, the types of, of questions I would ask and, and prompts that I would use with law students. And I'm starting to do the same thing within the firm. Right, um, all very strengths-based. Um, I, I'm developing a program for our first generation professionals within the firm that's gonna follow something very similar, right? A strengths-based assessment um, and identifying what constitutes a meaningful life for you and, and how you can connect that to your work with Snow and Wilmer.
0: That's fascinating. Um, for, for law students who haven't had a program like that or who are about to embark their career, Are there any tools where they can, I know that the strength, I actually have the books, strength finding books on my shelf. Um, They just arrived. Um, Are there, are there ways that young lawyers can begin to assess some of that on their own because they may not have access to, to you or someone like you?
1: Yeah. So my, my tip for that is as you're commuting home, whether it's driving or, or, public transport or walking from your office to your kitchen, uh, how do you feel, right? Is it a smiley face? Is it a sad face? Jot it down. If it's a smiley face, think about what did you do today? What might have made it a smiley face? If it's a sad face, what did you do today? What might have made it a sad face? And then use that to reflect on what that might mean in terms of the type of work that you're doing and the environment that you're in and what you need from that to make it a smiley face.
0: So pretty uncomplicated um, <laughs> little check in there, right? Yeah. Smiley yeah. face, sad face, why, yeah. why, and why? Yeah. yeah, it's free. Yeah, no, no no question about it. So you're building this program. What is yeah. the What is the reception to people that know what's in the works?
1: Oh, um, so it's it's in the very nascent early stages, right? I've talked with a few partners about it and and they are supportive. I think that generally the firm is really behind me in proposing different retention initiatives, right? Because at at the end of the day, that's what this is. We want to make sure that our attorneys are feeling connected and supported at the firm. And I think that I benefit from this being such a strange period of time in law practice where the these talent wars um, have just completely upended our ways of doing business right? and our expectations and our goals. So I think that any ideas are ideas worth pursuing. And I have a really good track record with this. I, I know that um, I, I've had a lot of students in the past tell me, hey, I, I felt like yeah, even though I don't know that my first job is my right job, I know what my right job will be in the future. Or I know that these are the things that I need from a job to make me feel like I belong. So those those are the those, that's going to guide me in it as I'm in interviews and thinking about different types of opportunities.
0: You know, it's fascinating. My my um, last podcast guest is a fellow by the name of Jay Williams who works for Thrive Global. Uh, which was started by Ariana Huffington to create you know, more, more well-being in the workplace. And one of the things he says at Thrive, one of their practices is at the beginning of onboarding is to ask employees, what do you want from this experience mm-hmm. and what would, what would you expect to get from, from Thrive? not just what our expectations of you but what would you expect to get out of this what are your needs and he wasn't saying it in the sense of we're pandering to try and make everybody happy he was saying it i think in a very pragmatic sense and and this is where i think the message sometimes gets 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 diluted by people making some pejorative judgments about what will it take for you to want to be a happy productive dynamic force here and it sounds to me what like what you're doing is you're creating an environment or trying to create an environment where um, the amount of money they get paid while important, isn't necessarily the, the driving decision maker about whether they stay or they go because there's a whole host of other things that could factor into their happiness, including yeah. getting from the firm the experience they want as, as skilled professionals. Yeah.
1: I, I really like that approach, you know, asking that at the outset, I think it sets the stage for a good dynamic, right? And, and a dialogue and, and a mutual obligation, which I think is is also really important for, for fostering trust and connection. And, and it actually leads me to think of something that, that we're also starting to do. Um, so we are checking in one-on-one with all of our associates just to see how they're doing. And as part of this, we're incorporating questions about how they're navigating stress, right? How, how, what do you do to decompress, right? Um, what brings you joy? And are you making time for that? Right? I, I think it's really easy to insert those types of questions into a traditional attorney development check-in.
0: I think you're right. But I think that one of the things that some would fear is whether or not answering those questions honestly would would stigmatize them right or lead to some professional judgment right and seems to me like you've probably put thought into how you create an environment where whatever their answer is it isn't you know a penalizer
1: right i When we ask those questions, it's it's from a a genuine interest, right? Um, I will say I I got a certification in mental health first aid this past fall because I wanted to feel equipped to be able to open that door in case Mm -hmm. people felt comfortable uh, being open with me. And and one of my biggest takeaways from that training was I'm not solving problems for people, Right. right? Um, if if I open the door and ask that question and they are honest with me, and it would suggest that they might be having a mental health crisis, I simply say, have you thought about talking to someone about that? Right. right. If, who's your support network? Have you, have you shared that with them? Right?
0: Right, so it's really intended to give them some feedback and ask us some questions, but not necessarily to induct them into some sort of firm wide feedback loop that they're feeling stress
1: yeah no i i think it's it's just part of of us caring about the whole professional and i think that you know obviously when i when i'm meeting with each of the associates it's you know you share with me what you're comfortable sharing with me we're just now meeting each other and we'll build a relationship over over time and that's my goal but hey, you, you built a lot of hours last month. That Was that stressful for you?
0: Yeah, so so part of the thing is, though, is you're coming at this when you talk to them with having done a little homework, right?
1: You're yeah. not
0: just reading from a checklist. You actually know, hey, they built like 300 hours last month or 250 yeah. hours. Maybe yeah. I ought to see how they're doing or, yeah. you know, they were out sick for two weeks. How are you feeling? It, it sounds like, you know, what, what, what makes the 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 endeavor, you know, valuable is that there's a degree of um, preparedness about understanding who the person is when you go in. As yeah, and I don't I don't, like don't a want to overstate.
1: Yeah, I don't want to overstate how formal these check-ins are. They're not right, they, yeah. but I do I do um, a little bit of diligence beforehand. the The one thing that I I am proud that I do is I make time to connect with attorneys who are working with them. And I say, hey, I'm, I'm gonna check in with Kristen this week. What do you enjoy about working with her? And then I share that because what I've found in my 20 years is that lawyers are terrible about giving feedback, whether it is positive feedback or negative constructive feedback, right? Yeah. And, and so if I can be the conduit for that, and I can in the moment just share, hey, folks are saying good things about you. You should know that. I think that that does make a difference.
0: Everybody needs to hear it. If it's, you know, if it's there, because it's so easy to assume that no one appreciates what you do um, or that, you know, you don't know how you're doing because no one's told you. What happens when you do that check-in and they indicate that they're not pleased with that person's work? How do you handle that? strategically because that's not as uplifting a conversation as passing on praise
1: so then it becomes a coaching conversation with that attorney about well have you shared that input and can i help you have that conversation with this associate
0: well the the the, i think the key though is that you're creating an opportunity to get past that gap of silence
1: yeah I, i and and what you said earlier really resonated with me about the the feeling of isolation and i think that in, in large firms that do have a, a, a fairly high billing requirement it, or expectation, I should say, uh, that can lead to isolation. And you can certainly feel like you can't lift your head up and you're just treading water. And I think that having more human touch points um, will hopefully help make it a, a better experience for you.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that as much connectivity as we can build into the process, um, it's important. And and you know, it's changed over the years. I mean, it's always been a, a demanding profession. But you know, 300 years ago, when I started practicing law, <laughs> and we were working like we had a night word processing group because we didn't all have computers. And so we would have contact with them. They'd be working on our stuff. We'd bring it up. If you worked past eight, you could expense your dinner and there'd be people going to dinner while they were getting their stuff back. We weren't such solitary people at our computers turning stuff out because we just didn't have those tools to be completely self-sufficient back then. Um, We, you know, word was kind of a new thing and um, we relied on, on you know, most firms don't have that kind of, you know, Sort of what I call the nighttime city anymore, um, yeah. They're the same to the same magnitude. So we didn't, we had a sense of community. It was a very cohesive firm. Yeah. And I think that, in, in, and technology has done a lot of great things. In some ways, it's made us have the potential to be more connected, but in other ways, it's made us to the point where we don't think we need human interaction as much as yeah. we do. Yeah. Because we don't need them to do basic
1: tasks now. Right. So I would love to use that thought and springboard to talk about social media a little bit.
0: <laughs> I'd love to get into that. I have a lot of feelings on that, but I want to hear yours.
1: Yeah. So as I have been on my own journey, you know, when I turned 40 and, and decided, hey, I, I don't feel very well and I don't feel very connected. It, it was kind of ironic for me because of course I was connected because I was, you know, meeting with students all day, every day. I was on, you know, LinkedIn, I was on Facebook, in Facebook groups. Um, And what I was realizing as I was going through my um, dry January, come dry year, come dry forever experience, is that I was using social media to numb out Right. So in the ways that I was kind of unintentionally having a glass of wine after a hard day of work, it was, it was my relief, it was my reward. I had my phone. Yeah. And I was kind of mindlessly, and that was how I was zoning out. And so it's just ironic that although we're using this to, to ostensibly be connected with one another, it's not feeding us.
0: And you know what? It's not even facilitating conversation when you're in the presence of other people because everybody's right. looking at their phone. Right. And right. One, of the, one of the things that I talk about a lot when I speak to groups and I, I surface a lot in, in podcasts is the whole notion that you know, social media can lure you into believing that everyone else leads a better life. Because right. it's highly curated, and it can right. be very addictive to live vicariously. Right. When in fact, you know, when I took Instagram off my phone, um, I realized after a week, well, I didn't miss it because it wasn't giving me any really good information anyway. Right. Um, I only had to put it back on my phone because they made me do, take over the firm's Instagram stories one Friday, <laughs> which was terrifying for an almost 60 year old man to do. <laughs> terrifying. Um, and then I was just, I was just absolutely confounded that people really saw it. I thought, well, what? maybe only two people saw it, and they're like, no, this many people saw it. Yikes! Yeah. But you know, when you take that distraction away, and I think that's um, it's a hard message to talk uh, talk to younger lawyers about because they've grown up with a phone in their hands. Yeah. Um. But, but getting them to be able to tune out sort of the curated alternative universe that people create is actually giving them a a, a playing field to become more socially involved and more genuinely involved with people because they're not just voyeurs into a curated life, but they're maybe having a meaningful conversation or they're talking to the person they're with versus scrolling their phone And you're right. I mean, social media can be like having a drink. It just sort of, before you know it, an hour is gone and your brain is just sort of gone. Yeah. Gone numb.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's my next, my next uh, goal is a social media detox. But I think that's probably going to be harder for me than quitting alcohol.
0: Well, you're (laughs) stuck with LinkedIn because, yeah, that's fair.
1: I got to do it. But yeah. yeah.
0: But I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a hard thing, but I think again, it's about self-awareness. How much time are you spending on those sites? Right. And are you learning stuff or are you really just absorbing someone else's like bile thoughts? Or are you looking at someone else's self-promoting life? And, you know, I, I even struggle with that on LinkedIn because quite frankly, you know, we're, we're in a culture now where people are remaking themselves into gurus and coaches and experts. And they're every day putting out videos about their lives and what good they can do with their lives and how they've mastered the riddle. And I struggle with, I admire people who can create a reality, but I struggle with people who, 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 you know, from whole cloth, like spin a reality that really isn't, you know, Representative of either their life or their their qualifications to do what they're doing. And I think it can be very overwhelming if you don't put yourself on sort of a social media diet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that it, it's perhaps not an authentic life. And that's just not sustainable over time. It, you know, as, as you're logging off, as you said, you know, the, the time flies.
0: An yeah, hour I mean, can go
1: by 2 hours and
0: then you've done nothing. You haven't happened. read a book. You yeah. haven't read a book. No. You haven't you haven't, you know, had the joy of cooking something. Right. Um, you haven't you taken walk your dog for a log. <laughs> Yeah, played <laughs> and, with your
1: kids. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, right. so right. um I think that's part of just cultivating a more intentional mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before we go, can you just give you know, your two or three pieces of wisdom that you would encourage people to keep in mind as they sort of look at a new year, not in terms of resolutions, because we all know those don't work, but in terms of like potential perspectives they might bring to this new year.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it's always a good time to check in with yourself, but especially, this year because we've now gone through almost two years of truly being in an existential crisis.
0: And that has- aptly put.
1: Yeah. And that's affected us mentally, psychologically, physically, you name it. So check in with how you're feeling, right? Um, And be open to trying new things if you're not feeling well. Reach out to your networks, reestablish connections, right? Um, And and really examine the value that you have, right? The the difference that you make, because you do, everyone makes a difference. And and bringing that self-awareness, whether it's through some contrived, you know, happy face, sad face, um, or it's through a, a more formal assessment that's meant to empower you, I think that's a great starting point.
0: That is fabulous advice, and and one thing I'll share is that some really good career coaches talk about building social capital, and the reason they talk about it is because so many jobs out there aren't even listed, and so they encourage you to reach out to people you know, not because you want something, but just to make that connection, and last year, last January at this time, I was about three days away from being in the hospital for seven days with COVID and oxygen. And when I got out, I was like, okay, that was existential. Existential on top of existential. What are some of the things I can change? And so someone suggested to me that I start like reconnecting with people. And I'm like, no one wants to hear from me. I haven't talked to this person or that person. They're going to think I'm calling just because I want to sell them consulting services. They're like, so reach out to them. And when you talk to them, just talk to them. Don't try and sell them anything. And so I did. um, And it was after enormous consternation. But what I found is I went home and said to my wife one day, I said, some people are really glad to hear from me and really appreciated getting the call. Wow. I said, it's astounding <laughs> to me, but yeah. I, I just assumed that who would want to talk to me? And it's like, I cultivated all these relationships over the years. They didn't end badly. And it was, an irreve- it was, for me, it was a revelation. And I tell this now to younger colleagues and people, build your social capital if for no other reason yeah. than what you're going to find is so many people have common experiences or have faced a similar challenge or are similarly situated. And you'll find that in so many instances, you reaching out to call them actually makes them happy. It makes them feel valued. And that's gonna make you feel happy. And I think that's one of the greatest takeaways is, you know, dust off that metaphorical Rolodex and, and, you know, dial that metaphorical rotary phone and and, and reach out and connect. Yeah,
1: yeah, I guess the the other, advice I would have is to find something that actually brings you joy. And I, I was having a tough period at some point last year and I talked to someone and she said, when's the last time you just had this like unbridled smile on your face, what were you doing? And I couldn't even remember, right? she said, I want you to just be open to something that might put that smile on your face. And you know what did? I went on a little camping trip with my kids at a YMCA and they had a roller skating rink. (laughs) I never, ever, ever would have like stuck my hand up to like, yeah, let me put on roller skates at, at my age. But you know what I did? And it was terrifying. But when I got it, that was it. I had this like huge smile on my face and that is my touch point now, right? Be open to exploring what is gonna put that smile on your face.
0: That's such fabulous advice. And I think that's a fabulous way to bring our time to a close because it doesn't get any more powerful than that. Kristen, I can't thank you enough. Not only for the great work you're doing and the, the the great work that Snell and Wilmer is doing to invest in its people, but for just taking the time to talk about this, because it benefits the profession. And you know, the people at risk in many instances are our our youngest, most junior members of the profession because they come in, you know, already under equipped to deal with that stress, and they come in having been under you know, historic stress that no one ever has had at the beginning of their legal career ever. So thank you for your time and for your, your openness and just your just general knowledge. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.